KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. There was a lot of concern about what a flu season on top of COVID-19 could look like. What if it was a really bad flu season? Putting a lot of cases on top of COVID cases had a lot of folks in healthcare really, really worried. But now as we ready for spring, We've actually seen the opposite. Flu way, way, way down. And this is huge news for everyone, especially the elderly. Wanted to dig into the flu season that really wasn't, what it means going forward, and what went into it. So we caught up with Dr. Marianne Loletta, who is the medical director of Inspira Life, living independently for elders in South Jersey. Really interesting conversation. Give a listen. So if I have a conversation with you back in August or so, looking ahead to the fall and the winter with concerns about flu, other types of, you know, seasonal viruses and stuff on top of COVID. What was your level of alarm about the possibilities of how bad things could be? Quite high. So much like others in the healthcare community and the general public, I was fearful of the twindemic that may have come upon us. So, you know, in August, I was really ramping up to encourage all of our patients and our healthcare providers to talk up the flu vaccine and make sure that we were able to administer it early and to as a high a percentage of our population as possible. Uh, you know, I was expecting the worst. But it seems to me, at least anecdotally in some articles I've read, we've kind of come out completely the other side where, the flu has been a remarkable, almost non-player in this season? Absolutely. Uh, we're seeing you know, unprecedented low values in flu activity, which I am not sure that any of us expect it. Uh, we are happy about it, um, but still unsure of what that may mean for future uh, seasons coming forward. How about other viruses and, su- and sicknesses that are usually a problem through the fall and winter. Similar situation? Similar situation, RSV, parainfluenza, a common cold. Rhinovirus has been the only one that we've seen increased activity, um, but for the majority of the others, we've seen that the rates have been decreased, which we are attributing to the COVID-19 measures that have been put in place. Yeah, that, to my point, I don't know why it never really occurred to me that wearing a mask, keeping distance would be just as effective. I guess it's sort of like you're so wired to worry about the worst case scenario and then it comes out the other way. Is it all of the things in concert, mask wearing, more consistent hand washing, keeping your distance, you think all of them, or is there one that really you think has affected the flu and stuff? I, I think it's multifactorial. I do believe that the masks and the hand washing are a big factor, as well as the social distancing. However, there are other factors at play. And, you know, we'll never know which one had the greatest impact because I don't know that anyone has done those studies. Um, You know, remote work, schools being closed, decreased global travel, decreased capacity in places where people do gather. So there there are so many things, you know, we kind of threw everything at this COVID-19 disease state and um, are seeing now that it has had what we believe to be benefit for the transmission of other disease states as well. Do you remember when you first, the moment when you first started to kind of put together in your mind that, hey, you know what, usually by now I've seen X amount of cases of 
the flu. And now I don't I don't think I've seen anyone or anything like that. Do you remember the moment kind of recognition? Yeah, it was probably, you know, close to the second to last week in December, thinking this is unusually quiet, um, you know, and then just wondering, is it that the patients aren't getting tested for the flu? Um, but, you know, looking through charts, we're seeing that if, if patients were tested for COVID and were negative, there was a follow-up test done to also check for influenza to see if that was present. So um, I really don't believe that uh, the low flu rates are reflective of lack of testing. And I'll, I'll say that based on some evidence, when we look at the percent of tests that are coming back positive this flu season, 2020 to 2021, compared to prior seasons, I mean, right now, the cumulative percent positive rate of all tests performed is about 0.2%. When you look at the prior three flu seasons, uh, those percent positives were in the 20 to 30% range. So, you know, of the tests being done, much less are coming back positive. And, and, and we're doing tests because we have a high index of suspicion. We're not just doing the tests to do them. I know your, your specialty of care is with the elderly population. How big is this for that group to not have the flu? In, I mean, COVID's a different, a separate argument, but to not have the flu in play, how huge is that? Huge. I mean, we were all fearful of these double infections and, you know, what what will that look like in our patients who are frail and have, you know, chronic lung disease and are on oxygen and heart failure? Um, we, I mean, I have to be honest with you, it was one of the scariest times in my professional life, especially because all of my patients fall into the high risk category, right? So I, I've been on high alert. Uh, we're very fortunate that we've seen decreased activity of flu. Obviously, you know, COVID has still been quite prevalent. In my particular program, we've been extremely fortunate in terms of having lower infection rates and very low rates of other, you know, more serious effects of the COVID. And, and I do think it's because of all of the factors at play and all of the precaution measures we put in place. You know, our, our patients um, in my program are more community-based, so they're really not nursing home uh, patients. They can qualify, but our job living independently for elders is to keep them in the community. So having them in the community more um, separated from the general population and having providers interacting with them with protective equipment on in a proper way has really kept them safe and healthy. And I'm proud of that. Have you had discussions with, uh, with your peers in other areas across the country? And is, you know, I mean, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but for the most part, is the discussion pretty much the same that we're not seeing nearly the levels that we would see in a normal year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at uh, online, there's FluView and there's all different websites that you can look on for flu tracking and look at the map of the United States and you will see we are mostly green everywhere and a pretty color of green, which is low to no activity. Uh, compare that to prior year's map and you will see all the different colors, yellow, orange, red. So yes, it, it's across the country, not just uh, here on uh, in the Northeast. So going forward, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can finally see the light at the end of the pandemic here. I don't, you know, we're not at the end, but barring something unforeseen, I think we can kind of see the, the runway finally. But with regards to what we've learned about what our mitigation and cleaning and all does to prevent the flu, is this a game changer going forward for flu seasons? Or do you think... Once the pandemic goes and most people shelve the mask and 
get back to moshing at concerts that we'll be right back where we where we were, you know, two years ago. So I do have some fear um, that if patients throw complete and and the community throws complete caution to the wind because they have, uh, you know, pandemic fatigue and and states are starting to open up. I do worry that we will see a resurgence of the flu. Uh, And especially since we've had a year where there's not much activity. So folks haven't necessarily built up any immunity to it. So now you're going to have these people who have not had any recent exposure now being exposed to virus. However, I do hope that certain measures that we have put in place are here for the long run. And, you know, certain of the measures are easy and not controversial. Washing hands. We should have been doing this forever. We've known since 1847, Dr. Semmelweis, uh, and, you know, maternal fever, that washing hands in between patients saves lives. The community has known that. There's signs in every public bathroom you go in. Yet, I can tell you, two years ago, I would be horrified seeing what people do in public bathrooms and just walk out. Um, So I I do hope that it's more of an automatic behavior. Um, You know, I can say for myself, I now get in my car, I clip my seatbelt and I sanitize my hands. That's my routine. Um, And it feels weird if I skip a step. I can tell you that cleaning of surfaces, although it may be more effective for certain diseases uh, than others, I hope that stays in place and in play. And and I think when you look at public settings, you know, you see that happening in food markets and and restaurants. And I, I hope that's an inherent behavior that goes forward. I hope that people have learned to stay home when they're sick. Cover your mouth when you sneeze and cough. Your mom has been telling you that forever, uh, yet we didn't follow that advice. And getting vaccinated. I think that's probably um, one of the uh, most important messages I want to advocate for. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I hear that from my patients all the time. And I I love those old adages, and they still hold true um, today. This year, I will tell you another factor, which I didn't mention earlier, is we did have distribution of flu vaccine earlier than we've seen in prior years and at a higher rate. I think um, 20 million more vaccines were distributed in the United States this flu season than last. And there was a high adoption rate of flu vaccination earlier on than we may have seen in the past. So uh, that should also stay at the forefront of, of people's minds, you know, get your flu shot as soon as it's available. And we'll see what happens with the COVID vaccine going forward, whether or not this is going to be a yearly booster, uh, you know, that all remains to be seen. But vaccinate, wash your hands, cover your mouth. Um, in terms of the mask wearing, I think that's, you know, obviously a little bit more controversial. And I don't want to stir up too much um, on the podcast here. I will tell you, though, for my population of patients that are at high risk, we will advocate, even if masking is not mandatory in the future, we will advocate for our staff when they're interacting with patients to be wearing masks. And we will most likely be asking patients to wear masks during times of high virus transmission uh, activity, such as flu season and uh, by following the COVID activity levels in our communities. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because I think that's kind of the wild card in this. I know in many parts of Asia, mask wearing is just behind a pandemic, no pandemic. It's kind of become just part of everyday life at certain times of the year for certain parts of the population. America's wired much differently. And given what we've seen mask wearing has been the last year, I don't know that we'll see it universally. But do you think it is possible that we will see it in certain age groups, parts of the country, you know, whatever. But do you think we could see it become more common than it was, you know, February of 2020? 
Absolutely. I think that the stigma isn't there any longer. I can remember going to a concert about three years ago with a friend who was on chemotherapy and she had a mask on to protect herself. Um, and I remember people looking because they were afraid of her. Uh, they thought that maybe she had a communicable disease that she would pass on to them. And it was an uncomfortable situation. Um, but now I think, like you said, you know, people are used to seeing people's, people in masks. Some people feel safer with the mask on. So I think there'll be some level of adoption. I don't think it will be widespread, which then uh, begs the question, how protective is it if you only have a small population of people doing it? However, I do think folks in high-risk categories in certain settings should, you know, really consider continuing the mask wearing. And those of us who interact with patients who are at high risk should be uh, mindful and respectful of those patients during times of high virus transmissibility and wear a mask. If we ever find ourselves in a pandemic outbreak type situation like this as a society, again, going forward, does the numbers, the what we've seen with the, the flu and mask wearing, does it kind of undercut any arguments about the effectiveness of masks going forward? Can you just point to that for people that are having good faith concerns and just point to that like, this works. It's so apparent that this works. And how much could this be a helpful tool if we find ourselves in a situation again going forward? I guess is kind of the basis of my question. Sure. And I guess I have to be careful answering that because, you know, correlation uh, doesn't always indicate causation. And because of the fact that we've had so many other factors at play um, of, above and beyond the masks. I mean, certainly as a clinician, I truly believe that the masks were a great part in keeping these flu rates down. And that is something that I will profess um, to my patients going forward and, uh, you know, colleagues and, and community. However, I think that um, we don't necessarily have definitive clinical evidence, you know, data or studies to prove that. But yes, is that my gut instinct? And is that uh, what I believe and that I will be professing going forward? Yes. And you kind of referenced this early on, but I'm just kind of curious. When we come to flu season next year, what what does having it virtually be a non-factor this year mean for the virus next year? Do we kind of know how that plays into what we expect uh, at all? Yeah, so it's a little hard, and this is something I have been thinking about. You know, because we've had such low activity levels, obviously um, scientists are still studying which strains were prevalent, and we have all of that information, and we use that information to formulate vaccines for the next year. Um, So, you know, but the data is limited because we have a smaller uh, sample size this year. The other thing that we look to is activity in the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia and Chile and South Africa, to see what happens during the spring and summer months as a predictor of what we might be able to expect in the Northern Hemisphere during the fall and winter months. And, And that's what we had seen this past summer. There was really virtually low or no activity in the Southern Hemisphere, which I guess should have given us some sort of indication to know that maybe we would experience the same. Um, I think that, you know, there are some folks out there, uh, scientists who are fearful of, you know, the pendulum swinging back in the other direction, having this uh, great resurgence if folks don't maintain caution um, and and follow the, you know, precaution measures that we have put in place. Um, But the jury's still out, honestly. Give me a big thing you've learned through all this, not just, but COVID-19, everything over the last year. Give me 
you know, as we wind down here, something you've really taken away and learned about this? Sure. I guess like the biggest philosophical breakthrough that I've had is to not allow the social distancing measures to turn into a social isolation situation, uh, especially for elders. Um, what we've seen in the community, uh, you know, uh, basically across the country is those older individuals, because of all these measures, there was a collateral damage that we were not necessarily anticipating or expecting. And that social isolation has led to other issues that we are now dealing with, such as uh, depression, uh, maybe weight loss because they don't have as easy access to food or their appetites really low, worsening progression of dementia, increase in falls because they have less physical activity because they are not leaving their homes. Um, you know, as a younger person with a young family at home and dogs and, you know, two working parents, my house is the complete opposite. There's like this dichotomy. So you have this younger generation that almost has too much togetherness during the pandemic and trying to do the uh, social distancing thing. And then you have these elders who may live alone, may not have any living family members, no, you know, friends nearby, and, and they're completely holed up in their homes with, with no interaction. So I, I think we do, going forward, need to make sure to pay mind to that um, so that when we are making these recommendations, that we have other counter recommendations for these elder uh, to help them combat uh, the consequences of, of being isolated for so long, whether it's, you know, internet-based activities, telephone calls, letter writing, there have to be counter balance measures just just so in our effort to do good and keep them safe and healthy that we don't make them unhappy you know and and isolated you know some measures that my program was able to put in place obviously telemedicine visits but that's more for you know the medical interactions and um, examinations but we also had access to this really neat tool um, it's iPad based software and it is actually a socialization tool or a behavior management tool. And we used it to program each iPad individually based upon that participant's needs. So if we knew they had high anxiety, but they liked classical music and classical music uh, calms them down, they were actually able to awaken the iPad and ask it for music to help them feel calmer, play classical music. We would remind people maybe to, to meditate, to breathe, to get up and take a walk. Uh, we can program it um, to even help do medication reminders uh, to just tell a joke. Uh, we had a, a few participants that that like to tell jokes and they like to hear them. So that was really neat. And the participants who agreed to uh, use it felt um, a connection. It was almost like a virtual buddy. And uh, it was it was very helpful. So um, I, I think that if you can get creative and you can do this in your own family. I know, you know, my own parents had flip phones before the pandemic. They didn't know how to text. They couldn't FaceTime. I mean, it was like, you know, they would call me on my house phone. I'm like, the only telemarketers call me there. Please stop. <laughs> so we purchased them iPads. And now my mother is like the emoji queen. I, she communicates. It's comical when I look at her text versus my 17-year-old. She looks more juvenile, but she's <laughs> And, and that was, you know, really, um, I think, game changing for her because she was getting sad and missing us. You know, she was used to having dinner regularly and now we're like across state lines just trying to communicate electronically. 
That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 